if you were given an audience with the president and the freedom to say anything you wanted, what would you say? Now, we can probably all think of policies and programs that we'd like to express an opinion about. And if we had been treated unjustly by the bureaucracy or by someone in authority, we would no doubt take the opportunity to plead our case. Well, guess what? The Apostle Paul was given just such an opportunity. After being falsely accused of a capital offense by Jewish authorities, examined by two Roman governors who were afraid to exonerate him, and imprisoned for two years, he was given a chance to plead his case before the king. He considered himself fortunate to be given the opportunity to defend himself, but it soon became obvious that something else was foremost on his mind. We pick up the account in the 26th chapter of Acts. The scene is set in the first three verses. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul was genuinely pleased to be able to come before King Agrippa. He had tried to answer the charges brought against him by the Jewish authorities before two Roman governors, but they really didn't understand the Jews and where they were coming from. Agrippa, however, should be able to understand. Even though he was actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau instead of Jacob, he considered himself to be Jewish, and he was, in fact, the secular head of the Jewish nation. While not morally upright uh, by any means, he did understand Jewish customs and questions. And Paul was confident he would understand the conflict between himself and the Jewish hierarchy. So Paul laid out his defense. From a religious historical perspective, but he actually went far beyond just defending himself. Couched brilliantly in his defense was the gospel message. And through it, Paul was actually preaching to the king. He maximized his opportunity to make a difference that went far beyond him. And he began in his defense by focusing on the hope. Verses 4 through 8. He says, So then, all know my manner of life from my youth up, from 
which the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. A promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I'm being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Paul said he was standing trial for the hope of the promise God made to the fathers a hope that had guided him through life. A hope that had been made strong by his early training in Jerusalem and had led him to become a Pharisee. A hope that had motivated him to a life of service to God. He had built his life around the hope of Israel. The same hope shared by the twelve tribes and a hope even Agrippa understood. So what was that hope? It was the hope that God would send the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, who would redeem Israel and make of her a great nation. For hundreds of years, the Jews had been a subjugated people. And their great hope was for deliverance, for release from bondage. The hope of freedom as the kingdom of God. And God had promised to send them a king in the line of David. They were looking forward to that king. But they misunderstood the nature of God's promised kingdom. They were looking for a physical king and kingdom like they had had under David and Solomon for 80 years. But God was promising the kingdom that would last forever, without end, eternal. God was promising a spiritual kingdom built on the resurrection from the dead. A kingdom God's saints would fully enter into only after death. And the Messiah would guarantee that hope by being the first to rise from the dead. That was the heart of their hope. But they didn't understand it. And they subsequently rejected the Messiah when He came speaking of a spiritual kingdom of dying and rising again. It wasn't what they had expected. So they rejected it. They were blinded by their misconceived ideas about the kingdom. But they weren't the only ones who were blind. Let's read on. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul, too, had been blinded by misconceived ideas about the kingdom of God. So much so that he thought he had to fight against this Jesus of Nazareth. The way to do so was to ravage his followers. So Paul became a great persecutor of Christians. He hunted them down, locked them up, and even voted for their execution. He punished them in the synagogues, tried to force them to blaspheme the name of Christ and get them to denounce their faith. He even pursued them to foreign cities. He was obsessed He was furiously enraged, he says, at them because they were promoting a faith in Jesus whom he rejected. His rejection, however, was based on his own blindness to the things of God and the nature of the kingdom of God. A blindness much like that we see today, exhibited by those with preconceived ideas about how things ought to be, and who lack an eternal perspective on life. Paul was blind, and his blindness became obvious on the road to Damascus when he was struck blind physically by a light from heaven that surrounded him at midday. He then heard the voice of Jesus calling his name, asking why he was persecuting him. Why he was kicking so hard against the goads. Now, the goads are a a bar of spikes mounted behind a plow to keep an ox from kicking. God had been trying to get through, but Paul wouldn't listen. He kept fighting what God was trying to do. Fighting in the belief that he was actually serving God. He had been doing exactly what the Jews were now doing to him. So he understood why they did what they did. He had been there. He had embodied the blindness of his nation by fighting against God's will. Until he came into the light. Verse 16 through 23. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, 
I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He should be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. On the road to Damascus, Jesus told Paul to arise. That he was to be a witness of all that he had seen and would be shown. He had been shown the light. And now his mission was to illuminate others, to open the eyes of all people. To proclaim a message that would turn men from darkness to the light. And from the dominion of Satan to God. To take men walking away from God, away from the light, walking in the shadows of darkness and turn them to the light. Turn them to God. To deliver them from the darkness of Satan's dominion to the kingdom of God. And to share a message that held out the forgiveness of sins and an eternal inheritance to all who would be sanctified by faith in Jesus. All who would be made part of His kingdom and be set apart for His service. That was Paul's mission. His orders from the risen Lord. And he had been faithful to that mission, calling all men everywhere to repent, to change the direction of their life, and to then demonstrate that change by the life they lived. And it was the fact that Paul was calling all men is what upset the Jews so. Paul was calling them as well as Gentiles to repent. He was calling the religious people to repent as well as the pagans to repent. The religious people didn't like that. They didn't want to admit they were in the darkness, that they were blind to the truth. But that was Paul's mission. And he testified to all men, small and great, Jew and Gentile alike, the truth that had been revealed to him on the road to Damascus. Truth that brought him from blindness into the light. That made him see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophets and Moses had foretold. That it was from the beginning God's plan to send a Messiah who would suffer and die, and rise again. A Messiah who wouldn't just reign for a time on earth, but a Messiah who could reign eternally in the hearts of men while they were on earth, and then in their actual presence forever in the new heavens and new earth. That 
was God's promise. And it far exceeded the dreams of the Jews if they would but open their eyes to see it. The Messiah hadn't come to reign in Jerusalem over a single generation of men. And He's not coming in the future to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years over a restored Jewish nation. He came to die. So through His death and resurrection, He could give hope to all men everywhere and for all time. That was Paul's message. And that was Paul's message to the king. So what was the response? And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul's sermon was actually cut short. Festus, the governor, interrupted. He could make no sense of it. He thought Paul's great learning had made him mad to speak of Resurrection and eternal kingdoms made no sense to a pagan Roman governor. But Paul hoped it made sense to King Agrippa. He at least had the spiritual background to understand these things. And he knew of Jesus. He knew of his birth and life and death. And he had no doubt even heard of his resurrection. Now, these things did not take place, he said, in an isolated corner of the world. They were the most attested events in all history back in 59 A.D., and that is still true today. And Agrippa was aware of everything Paul had been saying, but he hadn't acted upon it. So Paul got to the bottom line and asked, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets. He then answered for him, I know that you do. He knew that Agrippa believed the prophets. What he really wanted Agrippa to think about was how the implications of all the prophets had said and how it applied to Jesus and how it applied to Agrippa. It was decision time. For Agrippa. And Agrippa knew what Paul was doing. He responded 
In a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. He knew where Paul was headed and what he was trying to do. And Paul readily admitted it. He said, I would to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He wanted everyone to know the freedom of spirit that Christ could bring, even to one in chains, though he wished chains for no one. He wanted all to respond to the message he had delivered to the king that day. Because it does no good to know the facts if you fail to act upon them. But they all walked out. Ignoring the most important issue at hand... Discussing Paul's status as a prisoner rather than the message he had declared to them. They chose to ignore the call to repent. And Agrippa left the auditorium almost persuaded, but lost. Don't let that happen to you. You know, we study together each Lord's Day. We go through the Bible, book at a time, verse by verse. I see my primary role as that of teacher, to teach you God's Word. I want you to know the facts. But I don't want it just to stay there. I want it to get translated here into action. If you're not acting upon what you're hearing, what you're reading, what you're learning from God's Word, it does no good whatsoever. We can be blind to the truth while reading the truth. The Jewish hierarchy knew what the Bible said, but they had reinterpreted it to suit their own goals and desires. And so when they heard the truth about the kingdom of God, they said, no, it's not what we want. When they were called to change their life, when they were called to repent, they said, no, no, no. We don't buy the message, so let's kill the messenger. What do you do with the truth? What do you do with the truth? And for all over 40 years, I've preached to some of you. Some of you aren't that old, I know. And I've been preaching the same message for 40 years. The same message. It's a message that's intended to bring you out of darkness into light. It's a message that's intended to to give you the freedom that comes from forgiveness of sin. It's a message that gives you an inheritance with the saints for all eternity. But that message does no good if you don't embrace it. King Agrippa 
knew the facts. But he left Paul's preaching, talking about the events of the day and what should or shouldn't have been done, and ignoring the most important thing that was on his plate. Says, King Agrippa, do you believe? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? That's the message we have today. That's the challenge we have today. You know, we're entering the Easter season when everyone talks about the resurrection. What does it mean to you? We studied it this morning. The implications of it. If it's nothing but a spring celebration that comes around every year where we have a good meal and have a little fun in the yard, we've missed it. If it's a time when we just sing those favorite hymns, and that's it, we've missed it. If we've not invited the resurrected Lord to take up residence in our heart and life, it means nothing. It means nothing at all. The hymn we're going to sing isn't even in our hymnal anymore. I don't know why they took it out. Probably because it's a sad hymn. Sad hymn.